0: So we got a standing uh, theme going on here. I like that. So I, I got to tell you, it's awfully hard to to sit down when you say stand up for Jesus, too. It's, it's that's a tough one. Griffin leaned over to me. He said, "Something's not right here." He and I agree. That was uh, that we we got to stand up the whole time on that. But when it, it's talking about standing up for Jesus, it doesn't mean just standing up. It means taking a stand for Jesus. And of course, that's that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, today, uh, taking a stand for the Bible. Uh, and this week I got in the mail this set of books. I am in no way being compensated for this endorsement, but uh, these are the Anvil Rings. Volume 1 and 2 have been out for a long time, and uh, Volume 3 just came out and Apologetics Press released this box set of them, which for three books, it's I think $30, probably some shipping in there as well but it's well worth it. Uh, this is a great set of books that answers uh, all sorts of alleged contradictions and controversies uh, about the Bible, and it also gives you tools to use, uh, because it cannot cannot cover every single attack on the Bible, but it covers enough of them and enough different types of attacks and gives you the tools necessary to combat those in your lives. Uh it's it's a great faith-building tool. It's great for youth, and I highly recommend it. Again, they're not giving me any kind of kickback on that endorsement, uh, but I think it's a great set of books. And today, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what's called the Anvil Rings. Uh, and that concept is kind of a strange title, right? But the concept comes from this poem, which in case you can't read that up on the screen, I'm going to read it to you, which is Last Eve... I passed beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring, the vespers chime. Then looking, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil, anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so thought I, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. And that's the idea here, is that the Bible is like the anvil, right? And people beat upon it with their hammers, they attack the Bible, they attack God's word over and over again, but the Bible... Rings true. The anvil continues to ring out as the hammers beat upon it. And I think that's the the main thrust of what I want us to get is today we should never be afraid of any attack that is made on the Bible. Not from anywhere. Any claim that's made against the Bible, archaeology, history, science, Don't be afraid to study those things and confront them because the Bible will continue to ring true if we study through those things. Our faith will just grow stronger. God has already foreseen every attack that's ever been made or ever will be made against the Bible, and He has provided the answers for those things. The the attacks can come from all sides. They can come from friends. They can come from family, from co-workers, from colleagues. You can have professors and scientists. You can even have the government or even other religious people can attack the Bible. It's surprising how many places and how many people attack the Bible in different ways, but God has foreseen it all and provided A way out of it. Today I want to talk about a few tools that you can put in your toolbox to strengthen your faith and to know that no matter what blows are dealt against the Bible, the Bible will remain true and those hammers that are blowing against the Bible will wear out. Uh, The first principle, the first idea that I want us to get is to not just accept things that face value all the time. So, there's this principle that we are innocent until proven guilty, right? That's a, that's a principle in our law. Someone cannot just assume that someone or something is guilty. It must be proven. And our own law even lays out, the, the our law of the land lays out the evidence needed for ancient documents. The law presumes to be genuine and devolves the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. Now, that's in our legal system, that you have to prove that a document is not accurate. But opponents of the Bible make broad, generalized statements against it. Uh, Joe Rogan, I don't know if you know him. Uh, He's gained a lot of popularity in recent years. He's a famous uh, podcaster. He used to be a comedian, and before that he was a, a fighter and a fight promoter. Uh, but he, he now interviews people on his podcast, and he has millions of followers. Uh, and sometimes he's very conservative in his views, other times he's not so much. He's an interesting, uh, figure, but the other day, a few, a few weeks ago, he had a, a another guy that he was interviewing who was kind of making some claims about the Bible, uh, being a great book. And Joe Rogan was basically like, come on, you, you, the Bible that was assembled by the Catholic Church at the Council of Nicaea. Everybody knows that. That's a that's a historical fact. That if, and if you believe that, other way they they picked and chose what to put in the Bible, and they they geared it towards their doctrine so they could retain uh, political and and spiritual control over everyone. That was put together. The Bible was put together at the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea. And he. he he makes that statement. It's just a historical fact. You're dumb if you don't agree that that's a historical fact. Well, what's the problem with that? Is that it's not even remotely true. It's not even close. It's pop history. It's been popular lately to make those kinds of generalized claims against the Bible. But he and he puts that out there to his millions of followers, and many of them will never scratch the surface. They will just accept that. Well, if he says it. it It must be an accepted fact, right? But at the Council of Nicaea, they did not even discuss the canon of the Bible. That's not what that conference was even about. The Bible has been recognized as being inspired. And we did a whole class on how we got the Bible. And we showed that it was recognized as being inspired from the time that it was written. And it was collected and copied and and translated from the time that it was written. And it was not this group of people that decided what was going to go in the Bible and be left out of the Bible and some kind of conspiracy. Uh, That is not even remotely true. And the Bible actually has built-in defense mechanisms against that kind of thing, as you would expect God's Word to do. It is self-authenticating in nature. In other words because of the prophecies, because of the science that's in there that is is revealed in the text before humans knew about those things. It it shows that it's authentic. The prophecies that were clearly written before come to pass in in the New Testament or come to pass even some in the Old Testament times that were written earlier on. On top of that, it is tamper-proof. What do you mean? Well... It's tamper-proof, just like those little lids that are... They say they're child-proof, right? They're tamper-proof, but they're they are almost impossible for me to get open nowadays, too. But uh, as I get older, I'm finding that they need to make them less tamper-proof for, for me, maybe for you, too. But the Bible is tamper-proof. Uh, I mentioned in Bible class that I was having a study with a, a Jehovah's Witness. And it's interesting that they do not believe that Jesus Christ... Is divine. They believe he is a created being; that he is essentially that he is an angel. That is what they believe. Uh, main problem with that is it contradicts many scriptures, right? That's that's clearly a false belief if you read the Bible, read the New Testament in particular. And so, what do they do? Well, they have their own translation of the Bible. So they will take something like 1 Corinthians, or sorry, Colossians one. 16 and 17, and since that verse clearly teaches that Jesus created everything and that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, in him all things consist. And they add the word other. You see that right here? Other, other. All other things were created in the heavens and on the earth. All other things have been created through him before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. They just add a word in there. It's just one word, just other, right? But it teaches false doctrine. Well, how is the Bible tamper-proof if somebody can do that? Well, no other translation anywhere on earth adds that word other in there because that word is not found in the Greek. We have manuscripts. We have other translations, all that show that that word was added by them. The Bible is tamper-proof. Whenever man tries to tamper with it, it is clear that that's what's been done. It's clear in this case and it also happens in other cases as well. One of the tools I want you to get today is that when people claim that there are contradictions, that we can use that possibilities answer contradiction. So, if you take a possibility, for instance, Mark, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Mark two and verse 25 and 26, right? In that verse, it says, And he said unto him, to them, have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hunger, he and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, and or the high priest, and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. All right, Jesus is talking there, and he's talking about something that happened in First Samuel twenty-one and verse one. It says, "Then David then came David to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone?" and no man with thee. Now, the critic of the Bible will say, right there, there's a contradiction. Jesus says it's in the time of Abiathar, and 1 Samuel says it's a Ahimelech. Which one is it? The Bible gets it wrong. That's what they said. Now, the answer to that is that possibilities answer contradiction. If there's a possible answer to it, then it is not a contradiction. And there are multiple possibilities here in this case. For instance, one possibility is that perhaps it was the same man, but both names belong to him. In other words, he has two different names. You say, well, that's absurd. That never happens. Well, there is biblical precedence. Moses' father-in-law was known both as Raul and Jethro. That's Exodus 2.18 and 3.1. And Peter is sometimes called Peter, sometimes he's called Simon Peter, sometimes he's called Simon, sometimes he's called Cephas. That's a little confusing, right? But it's the same man. So perhaps, perhaps it's talking about the same man and he has two different names. Possibility number two, Jesus did not say Abiathar was the priest who ministered to David, but simply that the event occurred during the lifetime of Abiathar. First Samuel mentions a priest named Abiathar several times. Perhaps this is just referring to an event that happened during his lifetime. And possibility number three is that First Samuel does not give the name of the high priest when Ahimelech assisted David. Samuel mentions a priest named Ahimelech, whereas Christ mentions that the high priest was named Abiathar. These are two different offices. And then you can kind of say, well, you know what I think? You know what I think is that Jesus was flexing on these guys. In other words, he's saying, you know that story in the Old Testament where Ahimelech assisted David was during the high priesthood of Abiathar. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know that story, and I know who the high priest was at that time. I think Jesus is is doing that. You know, there's many instances where they're so impressed with Jesus. How does he know all these things? Well, this is him, I think, showing that he has knowledge that only an educated person, a scribe or a Pharisee who had studied the Old Testament in depth and knew the whole line of the high priests would know. That's what I think. But the point is that any possibility answers contradiction. There's no contradiction here. There are possibilities that exist. We have to define contradiction, and and contradictions are defined this way. The same thing cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same way. Okay? Does that make sense? So, for instance, a door can both be open or shut, but the same door at the same time cannot both be open and shut. Right, that would be a contradiction. So what if someone said, Luke Griffin is rich? And then someone else said, no, 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 Luke Griffin is poor. Is that a contradiction? Well, it depends, right? First, did you know that there is an actor, an Irish actor named Luke Griffin? In fact, many years ago, I bought LukeGriffin.com in the hopes that he would be a great actor and get really famous and rich and then want to buy LukeGriffin.com for me. And I have a legitimate claim on it because that's my name. So I was hoping he would win an Oscar and he would get really big. But he didn't. He was in one movie, and it was a flop. And he's been in a bunch of plays, and he just is never going to make it, I don't think. I'm, I'm still hopeful. I still own LukeGriffin.com. But it's not the same Luke Griffin, right? Or today, in this audience, there's another Luke Griffin as well. He's right here, Luke Griffin Jr., right? So perhaps it's the, a different person, and, and one of them is rich and, and another's not. Or perhaps it's saying at a different time, perhaps Luke Griffin was rich, he inherited a whole bunch of money, but then I lost all my money, and, and now I'm poor, right? Or perhaps it's the other way around. Perhaps I went to college and I was poor, I had to work my way through that, and then I became rich. Or perhaps it's in a different sense of the word. In other words, perhaps I'm, I'm not wealthy with money and things, but I'm wealthy in family and love and friends, right? So there's no contradiction there. You have to give that benefit of the doubt. It shows that just difference alone does not equal contradiction, okay? Differences alone does not equal contradiction, Uh, For instance, there are several of these, but, but this is an easy one. In Acts 12, we learn of the death of James. But in Acts 15, James, later, is a prominent person at the council in Jerusalem. How is that possible? But it must be a contradiction, right? Well, no, the murdered James in Acts 12 was the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, right? And the James that is in Acts 15 was Jesus' half-brother. So there are different people with the same name. Or it could be a different time. Some people have said that in Genesis 131, where God says he looked at his creation and it was very good, right? But then just a few chapters later, God regrets or he repents, it says, that he made man, He's, he's... In Genesis 6, 5 through 6, he's he's upset, he's disappointed in mankind. So it must be a contradiction. It can't both be very good and also be this huge disappointment, right? Well, no. There are hundreds of years between those two things. And in the intervening time, man has become very wicked, so wicked that he's constantly thinking evil thoughts. And only Noah and his family are going to be saved. Only the, they are righteous. So the events were at different times, separated by hundreds of years. Or difference in the sense of the word. In Matthew 11:14, Jesus refers to John the Baptizer as Elijah. Yet on another occasion, in John 1: 121, he plainly states that he is not Elijah. So is there a contradiction? Is Jesus confused about whether John is Elijah or not? Well, no, it's a different sense of the word. He's saying John was not literally Elijah back from the dead. He's saying that he is Elijah in the sense that he is the uh, antitype of Elijah. So it's a different sense of the word. That's another tool in our toolbox. Another one is supplemental material does not equal... Contradiction. Now, this is the most common one they use for the life of Christ, particularly for uh, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They will say, look, there's four accounts of this, and there's actually uh, part of a fifth in Acts chapter 1, right? And they contradict each other. That's what they will say. But supplemental material does not equal contradiction. So, for instance, if... I were to go to a ball game, or I watched the ball game yesterday, right? I watched part of the Alabama game. I didn't watch the whole game, but I watched part of it. And the part I was watching, Alabama was letting Arkansas catch up. And and then I quit watching it after Alabama scored another couple touchdowns, and it was clear that they were going to win. Uh, I had other things to do, so I quit watching it. So if I told you about the game, I would say, well, Alabama almost let them catch up, but then then they ran away with it, right? But somebody who watched the whole game might say, well, the defense really got great in, in the fourth quarter and that's what won the game. And somebody else might say, Well, it was the passing game. You know, that they they passed a 50 yard pass, they, they scored another touchdown, that really set them apart and demoralized the other team. Right? Are those contradictory statements? No. They're supplemental statements. Everybody sees these things a little different. They all witnessed the same game. But they, they view it in some different ways, right? You talk about different aspects of it. And as I said, this is a common one in, uh, in talking about, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but many a time, many times we are talking about supplemental material, not contradictory material. While other times there is another answer for the alleged contradiction. But example, in Matthew 14.21, the Bible says that Jesus fed about 5,000 men and that he also fed women and children. But Mark 6.44 says that he fed about 5,000 men. Well, which one is true? Is that contradictory? No, one just gives you additional information that he fed 5,000 men, but he also fed women and children in addition to that, right? That's an easy one. But Matthew twenty seven, fifty seven through sixty says that Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and placed it in a tomb. But John nineteen thirty-eight through forty says that Joseph and Nicodemus, the one who came to him by night before, and questioned him, that they took the body of Jesus and buried it in the tomb. Was that contradictory? It would only be contradictory if one of the claims said only Joseph buried the body of Jesus. It doesn't say that, only it just left out Nicodemus. And in the other account, in John, it has both of them. It's supplemental material. It does not equal contradiction. Another tool in our toolbox here is that we need to pay attention to who is talking and to whom. Who is talking and to whom? The Bible is inspired, and it contains words and statements, sometimes, that are lies. The Bible contains some lies. The Bible contains words of uninspired men who lie or who are deceitful. It is accurately portraying those things. But some of the words of the Bible are lies, and if you take those out of context and try to say the Bible is lying, that is not a contradiction. For instance, in Genesis 3 and verse 4, the serpent informs Eve that if she takes up the fruit, she will not surely die, right? That was a lie. The Bible accurately says what the serpent said, but what the serpent said was a lie. The same is the case... That's an obvious example, but there is an even greater example in Job when people pull things from statements of Job's friends. 9 of the 42 chapters of Job are speeches that are made by his friends. These friends are also called in Job 16:2 miserable comforters, right? So we don't need to take everything that those friends say as truth, right? They're reported accurately by the Bible, but some of their philosophies and statements are clearly wrong, right? They're telling Job, you must have done something really bad, Job. You just need to repent, and and God will stop doing all this bad stuff to you. Well, was God doing bad stuff to Job? No. Satan was doing bad stuff to Job, right? And... That was bad advice. Job had not done anything to deserve the things that were happening to him, right? So we can't take those things as truth and take them out of context. We have to keep them in context. Clearly one should never quote from these men and claim that the statement is both inspired truth unless an inspired man verifies it as being true, 1 Corinthians 3.19 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Right? He still does that today. And then the final tool I want to talk about when we're combating these alleged contradictions is we just really need to be fair with the Bible. So many times people are not fair. They do not treat the Bible fairly. Right? Suppose that you woke up one morning and you witnessed this beautiful sunrise. And then you went to work and you told your coworker, wow, I, just, I saw the most beautiful sunrise this morning. And they said, you are an idiot. The sun doesn't rise. The earth turns and it just appears that the sun rises. What would you think of them? You think, you're crazy. You know, I was just telling you about a pretty sunrise, right? Well, people do that to the Bible, right? The Bible will talk about a sunrise. It does so in Psalm 50, in verse 1. It talks about the sunrise. In 1 Corinthians fifteen six, Paul describes some of the Christians who had died as falling asleep. Is that a contradiction? No, because he's talking about the resurrection and the fact that they're going to rise again, right, with new bodies. All right, it's not a contradiction for the Bible to use poetic language and say that the sun rises. Okay, That's not a conflict with science and the Bible. Right? It's using poetic language in the Psalms. We have to be fair and treat the Bible fairly. Now I think all of us know most of these things. But I think it's very important for us to keep them in mind and keep all of these tools in our toolbox because the world does not know them. The world is constantly attacking the Bible. I've seen this over and over again in things that I watch on YouTube and other places where people are just like, "Well, I'm glad you finally admitted that the, the Old Testament is full of a bunch of lies and bad history, and they never ever give any examples of this. Why? Because they're wrong. Right? They can't. If pressed on it, they would not be able to give you even a single example where the Bible is incorrect. And that's what's so frustrating about it is people just take this on the surface. We have to be ready to defend the truth because that's where we get our authority is from the Bible. We we have to have that as our sword of the Spirit, right? It's what we use to show everyone the wonderful love and grace of God. Now, if you've never... Put on Christ in baptism. If you never obeyed the gospel, we would encourage you to do that today. Or if your faith has waned and you have let sin come into your life, it's possible to lose that which you have gained. It's possible to lose salvation. And we would encourage you to confess that sin, repent it, and we'll pray with you and for you. But let me encourage you today, too, to defend God's word, to defend the truth. Use these tools and others to help you in defending and keeping God's Word strong in your heart. If any of those are the case for you this morning, please come forward, make it known, as we stand and sing.